Good day, everyone, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast where we interview life science luminaries. I'm your host, SLAS Scientific Director Marshall Brennan, and today we're chatting with Ming Yao. He joins us from the University of Washington, where he studies new microelectrophoresis technologies for characterizing sphingolipids signaling in single cells. Recently, he was an Innovation Award finalist and Tony B. Travel Awardee, so it really is our treat to have him with us. Welcome, Ming. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No, really, the pleasure is ours, especially with the, uh, you know, all of the uh, accolades you've had. It's a, it's a real treat. That being said, it is our tradition to start every one of these interviews off with the SLAS challenge to describe your day-to-day work in 10 words or fewer. Sure. I would say lab automation, high-throughput screening, microfluidics, and single-cell analysis. And right. That's pretty much what I do for research. <laughs> awesome. Well, that, that was nice and concise. And you didn't, uh, you know, most people seem to struggle with that uh, a little bit more. So it's, uh, it's good to see you're on your toes. Let's take a second and dive in a little bit deeper. You were an Innovation Award finalist. So clearly we thought your research was really excellent. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. So I went to grad school at North Carolina State University. And I got my degree in mechanical engineering. So I worked with two professors in biomedical engineering, where we developed high-throughput screening technologies to study the effect of oxygen for tumor cells. You know, because tumors have a wide range of oxygen environments that it can go from a normal tissue level down to a very, very low level. Normally, you know, that's around zero. And we call this low oxygen level as hypoxia. And also in some part of the tumor, the oxygen level is dynamically changing because the blood supply is not constant. So clinical studies have shown that hypoxia and secondary hypoxia are one of the key factors in cancer on drug resistance, metastasis, or progression. But uh, right now in the industry where, you know, research labs, there's probably no technology that provides a process oxygen control um, in a high-throughput format. So we wanted to, you know, design something, a technology that can study the cell physiology or drug dose response for tumor cells under all these oxygen environments that were found um, in tumor tissues simultaneously. And also we wanted to, you know, provide a technology for um, biologists or people who work in the oncology department. And, you know, they have relatively less experience in engineering. So we wanted to provide a platform for them that, you know, they're more familiar with, we're more comfortable with. So we started with this industry standard tissue culture device called multi-well plates, and like 96-well plates. And also in the industry, there's you know tons of instrumentations that is designed to be compatible with multi-well plates. So that was like our initial motivation for this project. And we um, you know, used these technologies to study the cell physiology or drug, drug dose response of tumor cells. And um, so that was like um, pretty much about our project. That's great. So it's essentially a multi-well plate where you can tune in the exact oxygen content of the atmosphere, if I'm understanding correctly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Now, that may seem like a really subtle advance, but could you tell our listeners how people are typically do this now before your, your research? Yes. So, you know, like there are um, some microfluidic devices that, you know, do tissue um, culture in controlled oxygen environments. But that was more like, you know, engineering heavy were involved. And uh, we wanted to, you know, provide this platform for 
biologists were like, you know, where you can use large volumes of samples. So normally in the industry, what people do is to use glove box. The glove box mm-hmm. is more like, you know, a huge machine that they can fill the glove box with one kind of oxygen environments. And they do all this instrument, um, like lab, um, sorry, like they do all these experiments inside the glove box. So you can avoid the change of oxygen mm-hmm. environments during all this process. But um, this glove box, I mean, it's very expensive. It's huge. And um, it can only provide you with one single oxygen level at a time. Mm-hmm. And also there's a smaller one called hypoxia chamber. So you can also fill the chamber with um, one kind of oxygen level. But also, you know, in tumors, there's um, oxygen environments that are dynamically changing. So you can't just mimic the cycling hypoxia or cycling oxygen environments in glove box or in the chambers. So I think um, that's one of the advantages of our technologies that we can provide, you know, cycling oxygen environments. Yeah, that's really great because, I mean, you know, we sort of take for granted the sort of state of the art previously, which is that. I worked in glove boxes all throughout graduate school. And so I, you know, I think they're fine and whatnot. The hypoxia chambers seem like they'd work great, but you don't realize until you actually start, you know, thinking about all of the different nuances, the amount of waste that that generates, like how powerful it would be to get away from that. So that's why, you know, I, I think your research is so cool. So this is a really significant advance. What uh, made you guys uh, think of this? Uh, what was the sort of breakthrough that uh, led you to be able to develop this? I think for me, like my path where like got into life science or biomedical engineering is probably a little bit different. That, you know, originally I was doing rotations in mechanical engineering. So in labs like 3D printing wearable devices. And um I wanted to go to the industry, you know, to some gaming companies. <laughs> but like my advisor, um, Dr. Gamsik, went to our department to look for students with experience in MAMS. Because this project is like, you know, involves a lot of fluidics and it's very similar to um, MAMS. And so the way he was talking and he made everything like sound so interesting and you can feel his passion. And um, so I applied and got in his lab with no experience in biology or (laughs) teacher culture. So he kind of like taught me everything hand by hand. And I think that experience, you know, like just something got me so into science and um, it kind of also shaped my idea about mentorship, like how mm-hmm. I want to work with my students or postdocs in the future when I have my own lab. Yeah, I think um, also like, you know, he has like this open doors policy that once his door is open, I can work in any time. So we're like, you know, interacting every day. So I think it also like helps a lot when you don't understand anything about, you know, all the projects. Yeah, no, that's a really great indication because like our field is brought together from all sorts of different skill sets from, you know, all different parts. So, you know, clearly it was worth teaching you the biology, right? Because you brought an interesting spin to this. Coming into this project from your much more engineering heavy background, do you feel that that transition was in any way difficult or really, you know, was your mentor able to uh, really smooth that over? I guess from the perspective of, you know, would you recommend this as a path for other students who found themselves with a similar background to yourself? I think I would, but like, I would say like, if only if they have interest in life science or, but like, because I feel like there were like definitely times were so frustrating because I don't understand too much of these signal pathways. So I spent a lot of time learning about um, biology and chemistry. So a lot of times when I doing when I'm doing experiments, I feel like I may you know be 
missing something important about the signals or something just because you know I don't have a good background in biology. But like I think after all these years of training, because my mentors they're like so patient, and every time when you talk to them, um, they really just like show you their passion about research and science, and um, so you really like you know inspires you a lot, make you feel like you know yeah I want to be like them. So that helps a lot. Great. What would you say to to this point is your uh, most exciting moment in lab or your favorite professional accomplishment? That's a good question. I feel like it's probably like, you know, about the project we presented at SLAS this year, because we got this idea in the middle of the pandemic. And I was also graduating. So we were really like not sure if we can get this project out. And um, when you place a water, we're like, you want to use fabrication lab, everything's so limited. But we're like, you know, we just do the best we can. And uh, finally, that was like last July, a month before my graduation. So we got it done. And that was like super exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So when, when you're thinking about how you build these sort of devices, what's your approach? Do you use like a, some sort of rapid prototyping method? How do you go about actually starting a project like this? So normally for me, I would like to um, do simulation first. So whenever we have an idea, so I would just build a model like in SolidWorks where, you know, like people use different 3D modeling softwares. And um, I would use console to model the ideas because we're dealing with gases like diffusion a lot. Mm-hmm. So I would use console, you know, to model the diffusion and to prove my principle, like to see if it's working. And then I would start to, you know, actually prototype I like to use laser cutter and 3D mm-hmm. printer because that was like fast and cheap, especially about laser cutter. So we normally use acrylic and um, that's super cheap. And um, laser cutter, it's like, you know, you can build everything, like cut everything in a few seconds. And um, that was one of my, um, my favorite um, prototyping machine. Um, and 3D printing is also cool. That's great. Yeah, no, I think the, especially just how inexpensive and available that technology has become has enabled a whole lot of people to do some interesting things. So thinking about like how that affected your ability to work in the pandemic, do you think that this project was uniquely suited for you to be able to do during this past year? Or were there areas where you really struggled to uh, make progress? Tell me about how you start and complete such an ambitious project when you know dealing with potential quarantines. Okay, yeah. So as I um, said, you know, like, Originally doing, you know, like all this like proof of concept and modeling. So that mm-hmm. was easy during the lockdown because you can just build models or do modeling in simulation in your computer. And then we wanted, really wanted to use the laser cutter, um, but like uh, the fabrication lab is limiting, uh, you know, students. So we're trying to, you know, deal with them and negotiate to see if we can come in at night, you know, and after we mm-hmm. leave, we can sanitize everything. And um, so that was like one of the agreement we had. So we were able to actually go in like at night every day. So when there's no people like, you know, in the building. And then the other part is more like the biology part that we're doing, you know, um, drug dose response. So we normally treat cells with drugs and wait for two or three days and then see the results. So that part was, it's like you have to wait for two days, but like um, you can't go there or like be there, like, you know, whenever you want to check what's going on with your devices or cells. And that was starting to be, you know, like make you feel anxious, but <laughs> like it worked out. Yeah, there you go. No, that's really great to hear. It sounds like you were really resourceful and, uh, you know, thinking about workarounds, like going into the laser cutter at night, like 
that speaks to uh, a certain kind of scrappiness that, uh, you know, is sometimes hard to find, but I'm glad you were able to put to use. So thinking about just uh, wrapping up here, you've told us a lot about you here coming to your research from a really interesting background, the value of mentorship, how you go about starting a project, especially under difficult circumstances. I think you have a lot to offer the younger students in uh, our audience. What advice would you give them as they're starting their career in graduate school, looking to become the uh, future automation scientists uh, walking in your, your path? Yes, I think there are a few um, advices I would have. Like, you know, like first it's like, you know, to definitely go out to talk to more people and see presentations, you know, like to go to conferences like SLAS or in their community research field. Because I feel like for me, like this year, um, SLAS, even though like we're just doing online, we can actually see everybody. But it's really like helped a lot. Like I went to all the presentations from the finalists in the innovation world. And I really feel like, you know, um, I learned a lot. Like they have different research topics. And um, but like even sometimes just feel like the way they present their research and um it's like a lot you can learn. And also I feel like another useful um advice is more like you know to read a lot, like go to your the journal like in your field where like just typing keywords and um you can actually read a lot about other people's um, designs or like you know technologies like that can broaden your eyes or give you new ideas about how you can do your research like you know what experience might be more interesting in your design or something like that awesome thank you so much do you, is there anyone that you're particularly looking forward to meeting we're finally able to go back to an slas meeting in person <laughs> I wouldn't say like, you know, there's like someone specifically I want to meet, but there are like definitely groups of people like from different areas. For example, like in this year's SLAS, like we wanted to network with the industry, you know, like people, they have products for high throughput screening technologies, like or 3D culture. That was like something we're interested in. Also in the industry, there are people like wanting to commercialize our technologies and um you know commercialization is our also our interest so that was like you know different groups of people and then like for me right now um i'm doing a project on single cell analysis so i wanted to go to all these presentations from single cell analysis and um, network with them so they're more like you know different groups of people i want um network with that's awesome all right well we are at the end of our time today ming thank you so much for all of your uh, time on behalf of the New Matter Podcast, SLAS, and our listeners. Where can our listeners go and learn more about you and your research? We have like a Google Scholar website and uh, or PubMed or like LinkedIn, my LinkedIn. Excellent. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. We're looking forward to seeing uh, what else you accomplish in the future and to uh, be able to talk to you again on a future episode. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.